going to have Joe Thomason introduce our speaker today. So, Joe, yeah, go ahead. Uh, welcome to our fourth colloquium. Uh, today, we are here to listen to Dr. Joe Herkert discuss lessons from engineering ethics. And as Dr. Herkert shared in his abstract, this presentation will focus on some key concepts of engineering ethics, scholarship and teaching that are useful in thinking about ethics in the context of genetic engineering in society. So gene editing and biotechnologies are powerful tools that are rapidly developing and evolving as we speak. Uh, what is not developing quite as quickly is the capacity to evaluate the ethical and social implications of these technologies. So if we look back in history, there are lessons to be learned. And I'm excited to hear from Dr. Herkert today as he shares some of his wisdom from 35 years of teaching engineering and STS. So our speaker is an Associate Professor Emeritus of Science, Technology, and Society here at NC State with expertise in engineering ethics and ethics of technology. In addition to his degrees in electrical engineering and engineering policy, Dr. Herkert has an MFA in creative writing with a focus on poetry, and he worked as a bartender for some time. So while I'm sure we are going to all enjoy this talk very much, some of us would probably also enjoy talking poetry afterwards, perhaps with an adult beverage of choice. Well, <clears throat> thank you, Jill, for the uh, uh, very nice introduction. Um, I should say at the outset that I'm just getting over COVID, so my voice, um, I'm pretty much symptom-free, but my voice is uh, a little hoarse, as you can tell, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping you'll bear with me on that. So, uh, as uh, Jill indicated, my um, <clears throat> talk is on uh, lessons from engineering ethics for ge genetic engineering in society. Jill told me she wanted some fun facts, and one of the ones I mentioned was I was a bartender back in the day, and this is a photo of me about 50 years ago tending bar. <laughs> I was also a poet at the time. Well, I guess once a poet, always a poet, but I was actually a, a practicing poet at the time. So today I'm going to talk to you about what engineering ethics is, Gives you some brief history, talk about the concept of engineering as a profession, um, and talk about some engineering con ethics concepts and methods that um, might be useful as you think about genetic engineering in society. And if there's time, then I'll talk a little bit about teaching engineering ethics, since I know a number of the uh, students uh, are interested in teaching. So what is ethics? Uh, you know, ethics, it can be a complicated topic. There's a whole field of philosophy called ethics with many subfields. Um, but simply put, ethics is the rules and ideals for human behavior. They tell us what we ought to do. Um, in this sense, we say that ethics are normative. And what we ought to do, not just a description of what we are doing. So what then is engineering ethics? Well, again, there's a lot of different um, uh, definitions of engineering ethics. Um, this is one of my favorites. It's from a text by Martin and Schinzinger. 
Um, engineering ethics is the study of moral issues and decisions confronting individuals and organizations engaged in engineering. And two, the study of related questions about the moral ideas, ideals, character, policies, and relationships of people and corporations involved in technological activity. I particularly like this definition because of the second part, which as you'll see later on, um, fits very nicely with my concept of macroethics that I've used in my own work. <clears throat> uh, engineering ethics began to emerge in the early uh, part of the last century when professional societies began to develop codes of ethics. It wasn't until the middle of the century, however, that an organization called the Engineers Council for Professional Development um, first mentioned the uh, responsibility of engineers to the public. And in 1974, their code of ethics was the first time something called the Paramountcy Clause occurred. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but essentially it, uh, engineers hold paramount the health, safety, and welfare of the public. In the 70s, engineering ethics courses began to appear. Um, shown here is one of the very early uh, engineering ethics textbooks. And then in the late 90s, uh, the accrediting organization for engineering, ABET, which is the successor organization to ECPD um, developed a new set of accreditation criteria, which um, uh, underscored and, 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 and moved up in importance ethics in the engineering curriculum. And it also instituted a um, system of continuous review and uh, improvement for the engineering curriculum. And uh, in terms of the uh, teaching side of engineering ethics, that was a major turning point. And uh, things had begun to move uh, pretty well in the late 80s and 90s, but uh, the ABET 2000 criteria really jump-started a lot of activity in the uh, teaching arena. So what do, um, what do we do in engineering ethics? Here's just an example of uh, some of my own work, uh, sticking to the bar theme. Uh, um, I, I've done the, these, uh, this work with uh, two colleagues. I'm an engineer by original training, and Jason Bornstein is a philosopher, and Keith Miller is a computer scientist. And for a long time, we've been engaged in writing about ethical issues in uh, autonomous vehicles. And uh, we've had a whole series of, a series of articles um, on this topic. Also in 2020, we uh, wrote an article on uh, lessons for engineering ethics of the Boeing 737 MAX uh, disasters. Now, engineering ethics is tied very closely to the idea of professional responsibility. Excuse me. 
when we speak of moral responsibility in general, we, it means that um, if you have moral responsibility, you must exercise judgment and care to achieve a, or maintain a desirable state of affairs. And we all have moral responsibilities in our personal, in our personal lives. A profession is um, a learned occupation requiring systematic knowledge and training and commitment to a social good. So when we speak of a profession in this sense, we're not talking about professional baseball players or professional plumbers. Uh, we're talking about professions like law, medicine, engineering, and so forth. Professional responsibility then is the type of moral responsibility that arises from the specialized knowledge that's possessed by a professional. So that's what we mean by professional responsibility. A professional has moral responsibilities by virtue of their being a professional that exceed the ordinary moral, moral responsibilities of, of uh, individuals. Now, I make this point when I talk to engineering students uh, by talking about a case not from engineering, but from medicine. Uh, this is a headline from the New York Times. It was on the front page um, over 20 years ago. Prosecutors say greed drove pharmacists to dilute drugs. And what happened in this case is a pharmacist was um, mixing chemotherapy drugs for uh, uh, chemotherapy clinics. And he realized that if he cut down on the amount of prescribed drugs, you know, these, uh, these, these are mixed in packs with the prescription and then the rest is made up with saline. And if he cut down on the prescribed amount and put in more saline and yet sold them to the clinics at the usual price that he could make a huge profit off this. And um, he did this for about 18 months before he was, it was discovered he was doing this. And countless uh, patients um, received uh, chemotherapy treatments with watered down drugs. And the um, concentration of the drugs was found to have been from 1% of the prescribed amount to 40% of the prescribed amount. Uh, really a, tra a tragedy, but thankfully it was, it was discovered um, after only a year or so. So I, I talked to the students about this case and then I asked them to reflect on a case of a, an illegal drug um, seller, someone who might be selling cocaine and who cuts down, uh, cuts it down with say baby laxative. And, uh, we talk about that for a while, and then I ask them, which bothers them more? And uh, occasionally someone will say that, you know, the drug dealer bothers them more, but most people will agree that it's the pharmacist who bothers them more. And this is where I get to this idea that, well, that it bothers you because we trust the pharmacist and the pharmacist has a profession and a professional responsibility that we don't necessarily expect a drug dealer to have. And um, 
This is also good, a good introduction to the next topic, which is codes of ethics. And because uh, I show that, then show the students that pharmacists actually do have codes of ethics that uh, prohibit this sort of thing. So in engineering, we do have codes of ethics. And uh, as I said, these started, uh, they've been around for a hundred years or so. But today all the major codes include something called the paramountcy uh, uh, clause. Um, the simplest statement is in the ASME code, uh, engineers shall hold paramount the safety, health and welfare of the public in the performance of their professional duties. And then I've listed here the chemical engineers code and the civil engineers code. And then uh, the IEEE code is a little more uh, nuanced. Um, IEEE pledges its members to hold paramount the safety, health, and welfare of the public to strive to comply with ethical design and sustainable development practices to protect the privacy of others and to disclose promptly factors that might endanger the public or environment. So one thing you might be, uh, uh, as you think about genetic engineering is uh, you might be wondering, are there any codes of ethics for genetic engineering? And um, a few years back, I was involved in a project with uh, GES and uh, did a search for uh, genetic engineering codes and couldn't come up with anything really. Uh, but this time around, I was able to find a code fairly recently published. Uh, it's a code of ethics for gene drive research. And I've got the uh, web address there for you. Um, uh, if you're interested in looking it up, um, it's uh, uh, the author's name is uh, Anas, A-N-N-A-S, but there's about 20 authors. Uh, that's the lead author. And this was published just a year ago. And uh, let me move my, well, I'm going to let you, sorry about that. I'm gonna let you read that because my, I can't read it because I've got the, uh, the uh, video images over the top of the screen. So I can't read it from the top, but it has this introductory paragraph, which you'll know it does draw some from engineering codes, uh, called Paramount Public uh, Health, Public Safety and uh, Ecological Stewardship. Um, fair distribution of risks, and practicing science that is transparent and reproducible. I know these are all things that in GES you're concerned about. Uh, the code then goes on to have to elaborate in three specific areas, scientific responsibility, ecological stewardship, and public engagement and benefit sharing. And uh, I know uh, in particular, the last one is something that many of you are involved with uh, in uh, GES. Talk a little bit about my own work in engineering ethics. Um, I mean, if I'm known in the field, I guess it's for the work I've done in the area of microethics and macroethics. Uh, this distinction was first made in engineering ethics by a philosopher named John Ladd. And uh, this was back, I think his article dates to the uh, 
late 70s or early 80s. And uh, I took this concept and um, kind of expanded on it and sort of um, popularized it in the engineering ethics literature. And my first paper on this appeared uh, right about 20 years ago. And it's very gratifying to me that people still talk about this paper, um, this work, not always in the most positive terms, um, but you know you made your mark as a scholar when people start criticizing you. And uh, um, for example, I have one, I always kid my one friend, he says he never said this, but I always say that he's, he says about me, uh, Kirkard only had one idea and it's a bad one. Um, but anyway, for better or worse, this is where I've made my mark in the literature for the most part. Uh, and I draw the distinction between microethics, which is the ethical decision-making by individual engineers, as well as the internal relations of the engineering profession. And macroethics refers to the collective social responsibility of the profession and to societal decisions about technology. And in that uh, respect, engineers can participate either as individuals or uh, collectively. And this concept of micro and macroethics can be expanded to uh, uh, from engineering to science. In engineering, we find things like health and safety and bribes and gifts on the micro side. In science, if you're um, performing research, you concern, you know, you have ethical requirements in terms of the integrity of your data and fair credit for those who participate in your work. And on the macro side, uh, some of the issues engineers are concerned about are the concept of sustainable development and something that's becoming very prevalent these days, autonomous robots. And on the science side, uh, uh, genetically modified organisms, something you're well familiar with uh, in GES. And also the idea of dual use technology, um, concerned about um, products of genetic engineering being uh, funneled into uh, um, military, in particular military applications or, or uh, util utilized for terrorism. So this is an example of a microethics problem. Um, this is actually from my own experience as an engineer. I've worked in the power industry for five years and um, we were uh, designing a um, substation uh, for, uh, we worked with small municipal utilities. And uh, the substation was to be in the corner of uh, Farmer A's property, the Southwest corner, uh, North being at the top of the screen. And uh, Farmer B was very much against this project and in fact, their power lines coming in and out of this uh, this uh, uh, substation when it's finished, and Farmer B wouldn't even um, consent to having guy, guy, uh, guy wires for the power lines on his property. Um, now the city could have condemned the property for that use, but 
being a small town and wanting to be on good terms with, with the customers, since it was a municipally owned utility, it decided to work around Farmer B's objections. So um, we go about, the, you know, a, a local surveyor surveyed the, uh, the land for the substation and uh, we wrote up the contracts and the contractors come in and they fenced off this uh, substation and they uh, laid the foundations for all the steel work and transformers and so forth that goes into an electrical substation, uh, put down stone uh, on the whole, uh, um, uh, within the boundary of the fence. The station wasn't complete, but I'd say, you know, except for putting the actual equipment on top of the foundations, it was pretty much ready to go. And uh, we went out and surveyed uh, because we were building, doing some power lines coming out of there. And we discovered the surveyor had made an error and that part of the substation was indeed on Farmer B's land. And uh, the angle here is exaggerated. There was actually a, 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 a row of uh, bushes along that um, property line. And from the naked eye, you couldn't tell that the part of the substation was on Farmer B's land. But by uh, conducting, in conducting our survey, we, we saw there was a slight angle there. And uh, some of the substation was on Farmer B's land. So we had a dilemma as to uh, what to do. And uh, I'll let you think about that. Maybe we can talk about it um, uh, later on if you want to come back to that. Uh, this is from engineering, but it could very easily be from the work you do if this were, for example, a test plot um, in a farmer's field. Uh, Macroethical issues. Um, tend to overlap with policy issues, which I know a lot of you are working on in GES. Um, again, when I did this work a few years back uh, with GES, um, I had this slide, put the slide together on some macroethical issues in GM mosquitoes. Um, regarding gene drive, uh, an author named Pugh raised issues related to sanctity of life and uh, hubris. David Resnick, who's uh, actually local um, here at the National Institute of Health in uh, Triangle Park, uh, Research Triangle Park, uh, wrote an article on field trials for GM um, mosquitoes. And you can see his concerns are much more um, uh, concrete. Sorry, that's my alarm to tell me I need to go quicker. So I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm gonna try to speed up here because I know Jen wanted to leave some time for discussion. Uh, another idea from engineering uh, that um, you may find useful is engineering as social experimentation. Uh, this comes from also from Martin and Schinzinger's work. Mike Martin is a philosopher. Roland Schinzinger is a um, 
uh, engineer. He was an engineer. He passed away a few years back. And their argument is that engineering is like doing an experiment on society. And they argue that the characteristics of engineers as responsible experimenters include conscientiousness, comprehensive perspective, moral autonomy, that is the uh, engineer needs to act as an autonomous moral individual and accountability um, for the results of what they do. And I think these um, characteristics uh, all would be of use for you to think about as you go about your work. And then finally, um, uh, the philosopher Caroline Whitbeck came up with this concept of ethics as design. The multiply constrained nature of many problems in engineering design provides an excellent model of challenging moral problems. Many moral problems that are represented as conflicts are better understood as problems in which there are multiple constraints that may or may not turn out to be simultaneously satisfiable. So what Whitbeck is saying is, in thinking about moral problems, you can learn from the way engineers go about their business. And you could make a similar argument, I think, uh, comparing moral, solving moral problems to uh, the way scientists go about their business. And uh, I found this very useful uh, in explaining to engineers and, uh, and scientists alike that um, ethics just isn't the domain of philosophy. Engineers and scientists can learn a lot about ethics from philosophers, but in turn, the philosophers can learn a lot from us. And, and Whitbeck, a philosopher, acknowledges that in this concept of ethics is design. Let me skip ahead and do um, one more slide that's uh, similar in this regard. And uh, the philosopher Michael Davis wrote a book called Thinking Like an Engineer. And Davis argues that professional ethics is as much a part of what members of the profession know and others do not as their technical knowledge. Engineering ethics is part of thinking like an engineer. Professional ethics belongs neither to common sense nor to philosophy, but to the, pro the profession in question. So again, and Davis himself, a philosopher, is saying, philosophers are here to help, but the ethics of the profession really belongs to you. And uh, uh, you have guides in your profession, uh, sometime in the form of code of ethics, sometime in the form of mentoring from your uh, PhD advisors, uh, if you're students, uh, sometimes in the form of discussions with your peers, sometimes in the form of your own individual study. Um, but ethics is a part of what you do as a responsible engineer or a scientist. And then I have one more slide to share with you. Um, I'm a member of a group within IEEE called the Society on Social Implications of Technology. And um, we're sponsoring a uh, ethics conference 
uh, in the spring, uh, which we hope will be face-to-face. Uh, it's at Purdue University in Indiana. And the conference theme is Ethics in the Global Innovation Helix. And even though this conference is sponsored by engineering organizations, the focus is on um, technology broadly written. And I know a number of you in GES are working on projects um, that might be well suited uh, to this conference. And it's a um, interdisciplinary conference and we draw people from industry, academia and government. Uh, IEEE has been holding these conferences periodically since 2014. Uh, I've listed the uh, website there where you can get details on the complete call for papers. And um, there's still plenty of time to submit uh, proposals for panel sessions and workshops, and even more time to uh, submit proposals for poster abstracts or for short and long papers. So I think at that, I'll stop and uh, see what sort of questions you have. Thank you, Joe. That was uh, very interesting. Uh, do we have any questions uh, here in the room to start with? Okay. Um, I actually will take the first question. Uh, I won't call on anyone who types into the chat. Okay, so my question is sort of from the first part of your your presentation where you talked about the first mention of responsibility to the public in the ethics statement came out in the late 40s. And I was wondering if you knew what led to that um, statement being uh, included. Well, historically, the codes had um, um, been oriented toward responsibility to the employer. And um, uh, there were other responsibilities, you know. Um, you, you had ethical obligations to yourself and uh, um, so some philosophers argued that buried in those early codes, there was some sense of, uh, of um, obligations to the public, but they weren't very prominent. And I think in the post-war era, particularly as information about nuclear weapons started to become more publicly known, um, uh, there was growing um, concern that engineers needed to um, more forcefully um, state their responsibility to the public. Um, but it's notable that it didn't actually show up in the Code of Ethics to the 70s. And of course, by the 70s, um, in addition to concern about nuclear weapons and uh, nuclear energy, um, there was a whole array of environmental um, and social concerns and the Vietnam War uh, played a role in in, in these concerns as well. And so I think it was um, part driven by the uh, 
profession, uh, wanting to posture themselves in a way that was more public facing, as well as sort of uh, the event, the, the um, popular events or the socio-political events that were occurring that brought external pressure to bear on the profession. And you saw something similar um, later on with respect to the environment in um, sustainable development. It wasn't until the 90s that the codes started mentioning environment and sustainable development in the codes themselves. Um, uh, sometimes in the Paramountcy Clause, but other times in other parts of the Code of Ethics. And it was the same sort of thing, you know, internal pressure from people within the pressure concerned about these issues, as well as uh, external pressure uh, because these issues became more and more important. Uh, the IEEE Paramountcy Clause I showed you um, is another example that that includes things such as um, respect for privacy and uh, ethical design. And these are things that have really come about this century as uh, information uh, and communication technology has developed and artificial intelligence and um, uh, uh, smart systems and so forth have come to form. We have a couple in the chat. So Jason Delborn asks, what evidence do we have that codes of ethics have an impact on the decisions that professionals make? Do you know, for example, whether the NS code of ethics for gene drive research is seen as foundational in the field? And how would we know if the code matters in quotation marks? Well, of course, that code just, you know, came out um, a year ago. So there's not really much by way of telling if that code has uh, efficacy. Um, uh, I had a thought on that, uh, but I lost it. Uh, forgive me for that. Um, the uh, other codes of ethics, uh, it's a good question. Um, uh they uh, oh I, I know what I know what I was going to say about the gene gene drive code of ethics. The gene drive code of ethics, I think the idea of it, if you read the article, is to be mostly aspirational. But I think the thought their hope is that by, by being aspirational, it will at some point along the way lead to something that might actually have some substance and um, 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 enforcement uh, capability. Uh, the engineering codes of ethics, um, there's, kind of, there's a long history of um, how these codes are used. And my professional society is the IEEE Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. So I'll talk mainly about them. Um, uh, in the 70s, the IEEE, um, in response to their codes of ethics, 
provided some support to some whistleblowers who had called, um, uh, pointed out safety concerns in various systems, and as a result, were fired from their jobs. And the IEEE actually filed some friends of the court um, briefs in their behalf. And as a result of that, the IEEE formed a ethics and uh, our member conduct committee to help with the enforcement of the code of ethics. But that committee was largely dormant over the next 20 years or so. And then toward the end of the last century, you know, in the 1990s, an effort was made to revitalize that effort. And um, a hotline was established where people could call in with concerns about the code being violated. And um, the member conduct committee became much more activist. And this caused a backlash in the professional society because the professional societies um, are heavily influenced by industry, uh, both in a financial sense and also in a leadership sense. Um, there's a lot of academics involved, but there's also industry people involved in the leadership of professional society. And so there was a period there where IEEE was not engaged very much in uh, promoting or supporting the code of ethics. Then in the last 10 years or so, primarily as a result of the impact of artificial intelligence, as well as some highly uh, publicized cases like the uh, uh, Volkswagen diesel engine um, case where engineers were, were really, um, rightly so, portrayed in a very poor light. Um, IEEE started to uh, rethink ethics in the organization. And now it's become much more prominent. As I said, the code, Code's actually been revised three times in the last five years. Um, I mentioned some of the things that were uh, put into it. Another area um, that there have been some um, new developments in, in the Code of Ethics is in diversity, uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And so, uh, and they redid the entire enforcement mechanism of the IEEE Code of Ethics. So now it's uh, easier to raise concern. Now, I haven't been directly involved in that activity, so I can't, I don't have any insight as to how often these issues are, are raised. Um, I am involved in the Ethics Committee of the American Society of Engineering Education. And I can tell you, we've had some, not, not a lot, but some uh, very complicated cases involving the behavior of members um, that have come before that committee. Um, so I think the codes for the general population of engineers and professionals um, uh, remain largely aspirational with some uh, enforcement involved, depending upon the society. Um, but in terms of education, which I didn't get a chance to talk about, um, they're very useful in, um, in helping students understand what the ethical expectations of the um, profession are. Um, 
they're not a cookbook. Uh, one criticism of codes is that they replace moral thinking on the part of individuals. And so when you use codes of ethics, you have to use them as something as a guide and not as a strict law of the land. Um, but um, they can be very useful in an educational uh, setting. Uh, and and uh, just to expand a little bit, um, the, uh, the question is sort of uh, rephrasing uh, Jason's question somewhat, but the, um, uh, it's often asked, how do you know if engineering ethics education is having an impact? And you can um, measure what's going on fairly, fairly readily uh, among engineering students. You can measure their ability to spot ethical problems. You can measure their knowledge of the ethical standards of the profession. You can measure their ethical judgment, although some of those methods uh, are, are somewhat controversial, but a lot of work has been done in that area. But the one thing that you can easily measure is what some people call ethical willpower. Um, the notion that will students, once they go out in the workforce, actually put into practice what they've learned uh, in engineering ethics. And you really, um, the only way to measure that would be to do some sort of longitudinal study. And there has been limited work done on that, but you know, because it takes, has to take place over a long period of time. Um, it, it's difficult and expensive to do. Um, but it's really no different than, than the other aspects of engineering and science education. Um, you can teach someone uh, the concepts and methods of engineering and science. You can measure how well they do at learning those things. Then you give them their degree and they go out in the world and you don't really know if they're gonna become a good engineer or not, or a good scientist or not. You hope they will. And you hope that the training they, they, that you've given them will prepare them for doing that. Um, but we don't have a lot of direct evidence um, uh, to know if that's really, really the case. Okay, um, there are two more questions in the chat. I'm actually going to skip Amanda and come back to it. Um, and maybe since you also have an announcement, maybe we can uh, have you do that yourself at the end. Um, okay, but the, the first question I'm going to ask is from Henry Schaefer. And it says, the biggest influence on teaching ethics in NC State's engineering college has been um, the push from ABET, A-B-E-T, is that what you've seen? Is that what? Is that what you've seen? Yes, as I mentioned in the talk, um, around the turn of the century, ABED instituted a new uh, regime of um, um, uh, accreditation in which they um, uh, specified certain outcomes that every engineering student should be able to meet. 
Um, accreditation by and large takes place by discipline, but there are some general accreditation standards that all accredited engineering programs are expected to meet. And in ABET 2000, they actually had two provisions. One that stressed the importance of uh, engineering ethics and professionalism, and one which I like to call the STS um, um, provision, which said something like engineers should know about um, um, the impacts of engineering decisions in a social, global, environmental context. And uh, that spurred an enormous amount of activity, um, um, both scholarly activity um, in the field of engineering ethics, but in particular, uh, scholarly activity around the teaching of engineering uh, ethics. As for example, in the American Society of Engineering Education, um, the engineering ethics division has over a thousand members. Now they don't have a thousand active members. You know, um, I'm a former officer, and you know, at any given time, you know, you go to the conference and you might you, you, know, you might have forty or fifty active members. But there's enough interest in the from from other from people in other fields in engineering ethics, um, presumably because there's pressure within their departments to incorporate engineering ethics into the curriculum. Now, more recently, they've redone those criteria and they've combined the professionalism and the global impact um, uh, concepts into one. But the, the, the gist of it is still there. And again, I like to think of it as the micro side and the macro side, or, or as I said earlier, the engineering ethics side and the STS side. And, you know, I was a full-time faculty member here at um, NC State for 13 years from uh, 94 through 2007. And uh, during that time, there were... Uh, there was a requirement for an STS course for all uh, students. Now that's expanded to uh, interdisciplinary courses. Um, but uh, I worked with the engineering school through the Franklin Scholars Program. And uh, I often would try to persuade them to, um, to use STS courses to meet uh, ABET requirements too. And in fact, a number of the programs back then did require um, uh, an ethics course drawn from among the STS uh, offerings in, in, in ethics. Um, since then, I, when I, uh, I left for eight years, I went to Arizona State, and then when I came back, I retired. I've only been part-time. Um, I worked with GES for a while, and I've, I've taught some courses part-time for STS. So I'm not really on top of what the requirements are these these days. But but Henry's right. The ABET 2000 requirement is probably the single most important development in um, jumpstarting the activity in engineering ethics education. 
Um, there was building momentum up till that point, but the progress that's been made since that time has been uh, uh, quite substantial. A lot of work to do, to do though. Um, some uh, places have uh, uh, ethics across the curriculum programs in engineering. Um, a very few places have required courses in engineering ethics. Um, some places, the departments do a pretty good job of getting some ethics into the curriculum, but other places, not so good. And it's one thing to have ethics in the accreditation standards. It's another thing to have accreditors who take those standards seriously. And that's been one of the criticisms of, of ABET that um, the accreditors an accreditation team typically uh, consists of a member of each discipline that's represented at the school. So electrical, chemical, nuclear, industrial, uh, whatever. Um, but there's no humanities and social science evaluators, and, or there's no no one with a particular expertise in engineering ethics. There may be by chance, but it's not a, it's not a requirement. I want to hear you, uh, thank you so rest your voice. Uh, I would like to call on Amanda to ask her question. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much. Um, it was great to hear your talk. Um, so my question is, how might you appropriately include all the important stakeholders uh, when you're writing these rules of ethics, um, especially when they have conflicting opinions? Thanks. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, that's a very good question. Um, and again, I can I'll speak mostly to engineering since that, you know that's where my expertise lies. Engineers have have um, historically not been the best listeners, and um, engineers have um, regarded communication about engineering and technology, you know, by, by the in in the. Uh, um, one-way communication model, um, you know, where the experts know the facts and they tell them to the public and, you know, the public absorbs those facts and, and uh, then they agree with the experts and everyone goes on their merry way. Well, of course, you all know, um, and, and it's come to pass that most, uh, most people in the field of risk communication and science communication know that it doesn't work that way. That in fact, uh, stakeholders, um, be they expert or not, often have points of view that ought to be considered um, and that to make real progress, the communication has to be a, a two-way dialogue between the expert and the non-expert. And I've actually wrote about this um, almost 30 years ago when I was writing a paper about nuclear um, energy. And I referred to some studies that some psychologists had done on risk 
perception and risk assessment. And when I first came to back to NC State, um, um, you know, about six, seven years ago, um, Jennifer gave a presentation. She used some of the same material that that I had used, and it it, it was fun for me because it, it made me realize that even though the social scientists and the psychologists and the risk assessors um, have been talking about these things for for twenty years, it still isn't uh, totally sinking into um, to experts in the field. And um, so how do you put in codes of ethics in, in um, I, I don't think you'll find it in um, most of, uh, hey, Marty, I, I don't think you'll find it in most uh, engineering codes of ethics. The IEEE code of ethics uh, says something along the lines of, um, um, Increase um, public uh, understanding of uh, increase the, the the gist of it is increase the understanding of of uh, technology and its uh, uh, in a relationship with society by both the public and the experts and. Um, you know, that's one way of getting this notion of multiple stakeholders into a code of ethics. Um, I think there should be more, more language like that in the codes, but it's, uh, as I say, there's still uh, this, this, this notion that we have, uh, not just in engineering, but I think in our society in general, although I think your generation is starting to question this a lot, um, is this idea that of expertise. Um, you know, that experts are the ones who have, have all the knowledge and, um, and it needs to be respected. And if it means the views of others get get stomped on, well, you know, that's, that's too bad. On the other hand, you have a, a lot of cases where we really need expert knowledge and it doesn't get listened to. And COVID being, you know, being a great example of that, climate change being, being another, another example of that. So the idea isn't to denigrate the role of the expert. We badly need expertise and experts but we do need ways to foster that um, multi-stakeholder dialogue. We need better ways. Thanks. Thanks. Good question. Yeah, that was, and I think we're getting close to the end of the hour. So we'll end the, end the discussion here. Um, there are some great links that have been added to the chat um, that are related to um, things that Joe has uh, referenced over the day over his uh, talk today. So um, check those out if you happen to miss those. And um, before we close, Amanda has a, an announcement primarily for the students um, who are registered for this. So if you'd like to make your announcement. Sure, thanks so much. So just to the students that are enrolled in the class, um, this is a request for everyone to submit their seminar ideas on Moodle by tomorrow, 
Wednesday and share their opinions about what topics are most interesting to them by Friday. And then on Monday, we can decide what we want our two seminars to be. So thanks so much. That's great. Okay, and now um, everyone will help me thank Joe for um, this very informative uh, colloquium seminar today. Um, by uh, thank, thank you, Joe. You. That was that was really a valuable discussion. And thank you. Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it as well, and um, it actually helped me to go back and rediscover some things I had not thought about in a while. So it was very helpful to me as well. That's good. It's nice to hear that it's a two-way street. We're not just taking all of your uh, knowledge from you. Um, okay, uh, next week we'll be back. Our speaker will be in person. So uh, if you're on campus, come join us in PO 202.